Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey, everybody. Episode three of my discussion with Detective Lindsey Wade from the T Tacoma Police Department cold case. It's not like one crime, one individual. The right. majority of crime is being or, uh, committed, if I could talk this morning, by a relatively small amount of the population. And yeah. you, you can, I, so in your experience, how many crimes did one individual, on average, I don't know if you even have ever even thought about this, but if, if you thought of, of like say homicides that you've investigated, how many of those homicides were actually committed by the same person? Um, few. I mean, when you're talking about more serious crime, in my personal experience, uh, you know, I had very few where I had multiple offenders linked, or one offender linked to multiple homicides. But with sex crimes, it was a little more common to have one offender linked to multiple sex crimes. And of course, it's also very common to have, you know, an, one offender linked to a homicide, but has convictions for, you know, multiple convictions for property crimes, um, drug possession, and burglaries. Uh, those are very common. In fact, most of the DNA hits uh, that are made, at least in Washington, to murder and rape cases, they come from offenders that got into the database because their DNA was collected for a nonviolent crime, like a drug offense or um, a property crime. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. So, mm -hmm. um, as as uh, people are, I don't know, um, not necessarily punished to, to the extent that they should have been, uh, then that recidivism rate just goes up. Right. And so, if they're not really, you know, kind of get a slap on the wrist for a property crime then they'll move on to something more. It's, it's almost like easy money. You know, they, they just continue to pursue right. um, a, a, a criminal life. And then eventually they get up into the more serious crimes. And, you know, it seems like most of the population, that's kind of when they start paying attention is when uh, assaults and things like that happen. But in today's society, geez, I mean, you can, I, you know, in some areas like California, you, you like an armed robbery, you know, somebody could put a gun to your head and that's mm -hmm. a misdemeanor. Yeah. And to me, that's just insane. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty frightening. And I mean, I, there are, you know, quite a few states now that have arrestee DNA uh, legislation. And so DNA is collected at the time of arrest for certain crimes, usually, you know, felony crimes. Um, and that has proven to be quite successful in many states in, uh, you know, solving cold cases. And it also, you know, prevents that gap uh, where, you know, somebody's missing, missing the boat and collecting the DNA once the person goes through the system. I mean, if you collect it right at the booking station, along with the fingerprints and the photographs, just, you know, you're not going to miss them. 
And uh, so, you know, there are qu quite a few states. I don't know if Utah has a rusty DNA legislation, but I actually had a one of my very first rape cases that I was assigned back in 2004 um, was unsolved uh, for, I don't know, 13 years. And I had a DNA profile from my suspect. It was in CODIS with no matches. I had um, requested a John Doe warrant from the prosecutor. Uh, and so the prosecutor's office had charged the case, um, basically charged the DNA profile as John Doe to uh, freeze the statute of limitations on the case. And lo and behold, I get a phone call like 13 years later um, out of the blue from the crime lab saying, hey, is this, you know, is this case still active? Um, you know, is it, is it, uh, has it been resolved? And I said, well, no, it hasn't been resolved. Why? And uh, the analyst told me that they had gotten a hit uh, from an arrestee in Alaska. Uh, so the, the suspect had been arrested up in Alaska for a, an assault. And his DNA was entered into CODIS as a result of their arrestee legislation in Alaska. And he hit to my rape case in Tacoma uh, from 13 years earlier. So I'm a big proponent of arrestee <laughs> legislation, but um, I don't know if and when it'll ever you know, happen here in our state. Yeah, well, a lot of that is dependent on the, the standard politician that, that comes through, but it's, you know, there's lots of checks and balances in our mm -hmm. system. And I, I love that. Uh, but at the same time, if it's abused, it can be a, a real detriment to society. And mm -hmm. I think in, in many aspects, that's kind of what the whole country is, is experiencing right now is because, you know, if we have, if we have a really lenient state on one side and, and a more strict state on the other, the, you know, crime is naturally going to go up in the lenient state because people know that they won't be held accountable. And mm -hmm. boy, especially California, you just see that right now. I, I, there's a number of people that I'm connected with on LinkedIn and different area, you know, uh, even Facebook. And, but you see some of the stuff that is get people are just getting away with in California. Yeah. It just blows your mind. You know, the thought of being able to walk into a store and steal up to $950 worth of stuff and just walk out. And there's absolutely nothing that'll happen to you. Right. Um, you cannot have policies like that and expect crime to not just go crazy. Because yes. to an average criminal, 950 bucks worth of stuff, that's a lot of stuff. And they right. can turn around and make a few hundred, few hundred dollars on the street really quick. And that can turn into... Uh, a good drug trade and then they can they can turn that and make thousands so it's insane to to have these kind of policies that uh i i, I i'm assuming in some of these district attorneys minds that you know they are uh doing justice to uh to society and to the to the perpetrators but uh, the, the, my biggest problem is on the back end of that are victims. Mm -hmm. And I think far too many that, that kind of get separated, you know, they're not on the detective level. They're not on the, uh, like, I, I don't know how many times you had to sit in somebody's living room 
and explain to a victim's family uh, what happened and you know the, how you're going to try to solve it. And th- that interaction by itself, uh, I think for most people would be so strenuous and so taxing that they literally couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And the problem is a lot of these uh, people that are actually making policy and some of these district attorneys have never done that. Right. And therefore, they, they lose complete perspective of the victim and the victim's family and the justice oh. that, that they deserve. Yeah. Oh, I, listen, you're, pe- you're preaching to the choir here. I, um, I was lobbying and advocating for some DNA law changes here in Washington uh, over about a four year period. Um, and so every session I would go down to Olympia and testify on, you know, basically advocating for some changes to strengthen our DNA collection laws in the, in the hopes of helping to solve cold cases. And um, I would take uh, the mother of uh, one of my victims with me, who was, uh, it was a cold case that I was working on at the time. And she would come and testify as well, talk about her daughter's murder and, you know, and her daughter had a case that was, you know, we, there was DNA, uh, but there was no match in CODIS. And so, you know, sort of all leads had been exhausted. And, you know, what are we doing to try to strengthen our DNA database and look at all these gaps in the system that we could correct? And I literally had one year when we were down there, had uh, a, a legislator tell the mother of this murder victim, look, I'm really sorry that your daughter was murdered, but we're more concerned with the privacy rights of family members of dead inmates who might be traumatized if they saw their dead inmate loved one on TV um, being accused or linked to some new crime. I, I, I literally was like stunned. Like I, I was like, am I in the twilight zone? Did you just say that to the mother of a murder victim? Yes. Oh, that, so that, that's what, that's what I'm dealing with. Yeah. That's, that is, that's so out of touch with reality. It's yeah. like, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, but some hypothetical situation that somebody's, uh, you know, a family member or a relative of a convicted felon that died in prison that might be connected to a crime that they commit, you know, another crime that they committed, especially something as heinous as, as sexual assault or murder. Yeah. And that's who you're worried about Mm -hmm. as opposed to the mother of a victim. Right. Wow. Yeah. that, that, That honestly, in my opinion, those kind of people especially legislators, because they're actually, I, I mean, that oh, this is so frustrating. I mean, to me, that is like, as a, an elected official, their first responsibility is the safety and security of their citizens. Mm-hmm. And I would think that in most people's minds, the safety and security of people that are not breaking the law would take right. precedence over convicted felons. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. Oh. The good news is that finally, after four years, we did get some legislation passed 
in the name of um, this that, that victim and another victim in Tacoma, two little girls, the two little girls I mentioned earlier. Mm. So we got this DNA law passed in 2019 in their name. So it's called Jennifer and Michelle's law. And it, um, you know, it strengthened our DNA law in Washington. It's not perfect. I think we still have some work to do, but it was definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. Well, in fact, be, before we get too deep into how crazy some legislators are, let's um, let's pivot to that case. Uh, you know, could you could you explain that case a little better? Sure. Um, so, you know, this is the case that I mentioned. Um, you know, as kind of being one of those uh, things that really stayed with me and um, made an impact on me as a child. Uh, so. 1986, um, there were two young girls that were about my age who went missing and then were later found murdered about four and a half months apart in the north end of Tacoma in two different parks. And both of the cases um, were unsolved. And because they were so egregious, and it was just so shocking to the conscience to think that, you know, a 12 year old out riding their bike. Um, and a 13 year old out riding their bike in the you know middle of the day could be kidnapped and uh, you know sexually brutalized and then murdered in these beautiful parks in the north end of Tacoma that are you know family friendly um, tourist destinations. It was just absurd. And so you know because the cases were unsolved, there really were no good leads. And, you know, no good witnesses, um, you know, nobody saw these girls being taken. Um, so it was just, it was like the boogeyman. And because of the similarities between the two cases and the, the time frame and the locations, it, it was believed that one offender was responsible for both murders. And, you know, Tacoma had not experienced anything like that before this or since. So it really made it seem even that much more um, likely that it was just, you know, one rogue offender. So um, this is, you, you said this is 1986? 1986, yes. So what was Tacoma, and, what was Tacoma like in 1986? I mean, it was, you know, it was a... In this particular area of Tacoma, the North End, it was very quiet, um, residential, uh, you know, n n very low crime rate. I mean, it just, it, you know, it was completely unexpected and, and just shocking to the community that something like this would happen. So these girls were just riding their bikes in the middle of the day and describe these parks. Are, are they big enough that... Yeah they could so, hide this kind of uh, an activity? Yeah. So uh, the Jennifer um, Bastion, she was 13. She, she went missing on August 4th, 1986. She lived pretty close to Point Defiance Park, which is a huge park. It's about 700 plus acres. And there's a zoo, an aquarium, a beach, uh, lots of forested trails. Um, and then these lookouts that look over, uh, Puget Sound. So it's massive. And Jennifer had um, 
ridden her bike to the park that day to train for an upcoming race. And so she left a note for her dad saying she'd be home by 6.30. Um, it was not uncommon for her to ride at the park, although she normally rode with a friend. Um, on this particular day, though, she went by herself because her friend was not available. So there were several witnesses throughout the day that saw Jennifer riding on the five mile drive as she had intended. Um, so this is a basically a um, paved road, kind of a five mile loop within the park. And so, you know, later um, these witnesses came forward and several people described seeing Jennifer and, you know, no one saw anything out of the ordinary or anything that looked suspicious regarding her. 6.30 p.m. comes and goes and she's not home. So her dad sets out around the neighborhood looking for her. Um, some neighbors join in the search and they retrace her route to the park and um, come up with nothing. So they call the police. Now, when the police come, they immediately were concerned that this was more than just an overdue child because four and a half months earlier, Another little girl um, was abducted and murdered and found, um, you know, within a, another community park that was about a mile and a half away. Smaller park, uh, not known to people outside the area, more of a neighborhood park, if you will. That case was unsolved at that time. And so it was like, okay, do, you know, do we have another one? So they immediately called out search and rescue. They had bloodhounds that came out to the house and um, tracked Jennifer's scent from the house to the park around the five mile drive, but they did not find any trace of Jennifer. So that the park was closed down for three days or the five mile drive within the park was closed for three days while they conducted this massive search. They had search and rescue volunteers from all over the state that responded on horseback, ATV, on foot. Um, and after three days, they still didn't find anything. So the investigation, you know, th there were lots of red herrings within the investigation. There were, um, you know, there was a black van that was thought to have been involved at one point, but that was later ruled out. So it was, it, it was just puzzling because as much uh, interest as there was within the media um, and the public, you know, they just, it, it just never got solved. And the case four months earlier, and the reason I'm not going into detail about the, the first case is because it has not been adjudicated. So um, I'm not gonna go into details on that one yet because the suspect is in jail awaiting trial. But in the first case, I will say that there was DNA that was, um, collected from the victim's body and put into CODIS and it didn't match anyone. So, you know, all these years, there was this one DNA profile thought to be the, the DNA from the suspect in both cases. And really for about 28 years, both cases were investigated as if they were committed by the same suspect for the reasons that I gave previously. Then in 2012, um, there's kind of a bombshell. And that was, we 
finally obtained a DNA profile in Jennifer's case, and it came from her swimsuit. And that profile did not match the DNA from the other case. And it was from semen. So we knew it was the suspect's DNA. So now, after 28 years of thinking one guy committed both these crimes, all of a sudden, we're thrown into the situation where we have to go back and basically reinvestigate the case. Because there were many, many suspects who were eliminated because they were not available for one or the other crime. You know, if they were in jail for one, they were eliminated for both. So that had to be re-evaluated and people had to be uh, looked at again because now we're having to separate these two cases and look at them completely differently with the understanding that we have two completely separate and distinct suspects in these two crimes that are almost nearly identical. <laughs> it was interesting. Um, you know, we got excited because it's like, okay, well, we've got DNA, but, you know, much to our chagrin, again, the DNA from the suspect does not match anyone in CODIS. So we're back to square one. And over the years, uh, you know, there had been a number of suspects that had been um, tested, you know, early on, they were taking hair samples and doing, you know, blood typing um, and collecting hairs from people because that's really, you know, what they did in 86. And then uh, eventually, you know, people were eliminated through DNA testing. And, you know, the people that really stood out to the original investigators as being prime suspects were all eventually eliminated uh, through DNA. And so it just came to a point where it was like, okay, either the case is going to be solved by um, some, some guy somewhere getting arrested finally and, you know, getting his DNA put into CODIS because my working theory on the case was that, Hey, maybe this guy just, you know, since I'd known from Ted Bundy and all these others, a lot of these guys are slipping through the cracks and they're not in CODIS as they should be. Maybe this guy is rotting away in prison somewhere in another state or in Washington for all I know, maybe he died in prison. Um, you know, there were all these theories about who this suspect was and how he could have evaded capture all these years. Uh, because even though we had by this point recognized that we had two separate suspects, we also knew that based on the level of violence, the predatory nature of the murders, it was likely that this was not a one and done, that, that the offender it, like in Jennifer's case, you know, this probably wasn't his first or his last victim. So I felt really strongly that he was somewhere identified as being a sexual deviant that, you know, and for whatever reason had slipped through the cracks. Uh, I would later come to find out that I was completely wrong. And that as it turned out, this guy had pretty much no criminal history. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.